Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee, yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. The grass withers, but the flower fades. The word of our God shall stand forever. Before we begin our study this morning, let's make sure we're in fellowship. So we'll have a few moments of silent prayer, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for this opportunity and privilege to gather together to study your word, to have our thinking transformed by the uh, teaching of your word, by understanding what you have taught us, by the ministry of God, the Holy Spirit, who is in the process of, of overhauling our thinking by the absolute truths of your word. Father, we thank you for this nation that we live in. We thank you for the privileges that we have the freedoms that we have in this nation to meet together, to study your word without uh, fear of interference from the government. Father, we pray that you would continue to provide these freedoms for us, that you would continue to protect this nation, especially for our president, that you would continue to give him wisdom, that you would provide for him advisors who know how to accurately assess the information that they receive and can draw the correct conclusions. We continue to pray for our security forces, that they would be able to uh, be uh, alert to problems that may occur, and for our intelligence forces, that they may be able to properly identify crucial uh, pieces of information, that they would continue to be able to identify the enemy and to stop them from any uh, assaults uh, directed against this nation. Father, we pray for us that we might be challenged by your word, that we might not just take this as an academic exercise, but we might recognize that the truth of your word is designed to transform us, to change us. And as our Lord said, it is through the knowledge of your word that we have real freedom, genuine freedom indeed. Father, we commit this time for your honor and glory. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. We are continuing our study on spiritual gifts in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, and the last two weeks we have focused on the doctrine of the baptism by means of God the Holy Spirit. Now, I made a point two weeks ago when I began to look at the exegesis of that passage that there was some confusion in terminology, confusion in terminology in this in the analysis of this passage, simply because we talk uh, somewhat loosely about the agent of the action, and there's a grammatical term, personal agency versus impersonal means. And in the process of 
the study of this passage, there have been theologians who have confused the emphasis on the person of the Holy Spirit with grammatical terminology such as impersonal means, that somehow the terminology means that the, 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 the person or the object, if it's impersonal means, is not a person. And that is a misunderstanding of the categories. But as I brought that up, and we went through that in detail the last two weeks, it did raise a very important doctrine, and that is the doctrine of the personhood of God the Holy Spirit, the doctrine of the personhood of God the Holy Spirit. So I want to cover that this morning under uh, six basic categories, or rather five basic categories of thought. Five basic points or categories of thought on the personhood of God the Holy Spirit. Now, the issue here is important because starting in the late 19th century or early 20th century, within the framework of, of so-called Christianity, which really was liberal Christianity, the Protestant liberal theology that developed in the early 19th century, there was an assault on the doctrine of the Trinity itself, and part of this manifested itself as an assault on the personhood of God the Holy Spirit. If Jesus Christ isn't fully God, therefore you don't have an eternal divine person as a second person of the Trinity, and if then you can do away with the individual personhood of the Holy Spirit, then what you end up with is a single uh solitary monotheism or Unitarian monotheism. And, of course, Unitarianism came into this country by the late 1700s and really prepared the uh, so-called evangelical denominations for liberal theology. It was the precursor to uh, 19th century Protestant liberalism. So we want to look at this important doctrine on the personhood of the Holy Spirit because there are a lot of people who think of the Holy Spirit in terms of an impersonal force or simply an expression of God, some sort of overt manifestation or expression of God or a personification of God rather than as a distinct person and a distinct personality. So the first way we approach this doctrine is to look at the fact that the Holy Spirit is described in Scripture as possessing the attributes of personality. He has the attributes of personality, specifically intellect and will. Any personality is going to express itself through its own independent thought processes, indicating that that individual personality has its own mind and through the expression of its own will. And we have passages that indicate this in Scripture. For example, Romans 8.27, we're told, Now he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is. And there's the key phrase, the mind of the Spirit, that the Spirit is stated to have his own thought processes in Romans 8.27. Then in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 10 and 11, we read, But God revealed them to us through his Spirit. And the them here is a reference to the Scriptures, the Old Testament, specifically in context. But God has revealed them to us through his Spirit, for the Spirit searches all things, yes, the deep things of God. For what man knows the things of a man except the Spirit of the man which is in him? Even so, and here's the... Here's the important point. Even so, no one knows the things of God except the Spirit of God. 
So there is another clear statement that the Holy Spirit knows specific things. So he has knowledge and thought. Then in this same passage in verse 13 we read, These things we also speak, not in words which man's wisdom teaches, but which the Holy Spirit teaches. So here we see that the Holy Spirit is said to teach specific things. So he has a mind, Romans 8.27, he knows and he searches the uh, things of God, 1 Corinthians 2.10 and 11. And he teaches divine viewpoint to people in 1 Corinthians 2.13. Then we have several other passages that uh, attribute to God the Holy Spirit certain emotions, and these must be understood anthropopathically. Now, the term anthropopathism is a term that uh, is debated today by many people. I think this is anthropopathism. I think this is due to the emotional subjective orientation of modern man since at least the mid-19th century. It's fascinating that out of the mid-19th century you have Darwinism, Freudianism, and, and sociology all develop at the same time, and, the think, and, and Marxism is a fourth category, and the major thinkers in each of those branches of thought were influenced by the major thinkers in the other branches of thought. You can't understand any one of those without truly understanding how they relate to those other areas of thought. It would be it's going to be very interesting, I think, when we get to heaven to find out what was happening in the spiritual realm, what's happening in terms of Satan and the angelic conflict in the middle of the nineteenth century, because it was such a seedbed for so much a horrible human viewpoint thought that has virtually destroyed the impact of biblical Christianity in Western civilization during the last 150 years. But anyway, the term anthropopathism comes from the Greek word anthropos, meaning man, and pathos, which relates to emotion. And so the idea in an anthropopathism is that we attribute to God certain emotions which God does not actually possess. That's the key phrase, emotions which God does not actually possess. They are human emotions, and, we are, and they are used in an analogous manner in order to communicate to us God's purposes, plans, and policies. So an anthropopathism is a figure of speech where human emotions, which God does not actually left out that key word there, which God does not actually possess, are attributed to him in order to communicate to man uh, God's purposes, plans, and policies. So that is an anthropopathism. God, we have gone through this in detail, showing that God does not actually possess emotion, and emotion is a response to certain uh, stimuli. And it is a response to thought, what is believed. Yet in God's thinking, he is omniscient. He knows all the knowable. He always has known all the knowable. Nothing takes place in history that catches God off guard, that surprises him, that shocks him. And so when you read passages where God expresses anger, 
towards uh, the Jews, for example, in, in Exodus, when they are when they get involved in the golden calf incident, and God is ready to destroy the entire nation, and it says that God was angry with Israel. That in itself isn't even an uh, it isn't even a literal term. The in fact the Hebrew uses an anthropomorphism. Now that's the other key term we have to remember: anthropomorphism. And an anthropomorphism is very similar, comes from the Greek anthropos, meaning man or human, and morphos, or morphe, meaning form. And it's attributing to God human form that God does not actually possess, such as the eyes of God, uh, the arms of God. God does not possess arms, God does not possess eyes, but it is attributing to God human form in order to, attributing to God human form in which he does not actually possess in order to communicate to man God's plans, purposes, and policies. So, in the Hebrew, the term that you have in that passage for God's anger, and in all, actually the term for anger in Hebrew, comes from the verb hara, meaning to burn, and it literally is the statement that God's God's nose burnt when a person gets angry and their nose turns red. So what you have when you have a statement that God is angry isn't even a literal statement. It's a figurative statement that his nose is turning red. Well, God's nose doesn't turn red because God doesn't have a nose like you and I have a nose, and he doesn't have a body with blood vessels that uh, constrict and expand and all the other things that causes one's face to turn red when you get angry. So you have an anthropomorphism in that passage used to express an anthropopathism. All of these are just figures of speech used to show man certain things that are going on in relationship to the justice of God. And in that passage, it is the fact that God's righteousness has been violated, so his justice must judge man. So when we come to these passages that attribute emotion to the Holy Spirit, they must be understood as anthropopathisms. It is not that the Holy Spirit has emotion, for God does not have emotion, but it is that an expression of the fact that God's righteousness has been violated by human behavior. Or in other passages where man's behavior is approved by God's righteousness. For example, in Ephesians 4.30, we're told that we can grieve the Holy Spirit. Well, grief is an emotion. But if you grieve the Holy Spirit by your sin, but God knew that you would sin billions and billions of years ago. So it is not that God the Holy Spirit has been grieved over you for billions and billions of years. God the Holy Spirit, though at that instant of your sin, is is grieved in the sense that his operation in your life in terms of, of your spiritual growth is, is shut down. It is brought to a close temporarily until you confess your sin. And so the concept of grieving is simply expressing that in uh, human emotional terms. Romans 15.30 talks about love, and we have seen that the term love often in Scripture is not an emotion. It is a mental attitude of seeking that which is best for the object of love. It is not the kind of sentimental, emotional, subjective feeling that we are 
uh, taught by our culture to think of as love. Romans 15.30, we read the phrase in the middle there, through the love of the Spirit, that is, the Holy Spirit expresses love. So we see that he has a mind, there are emotions attributed to the Holy Spirit anthropopathically, and then the Holy Spirit has will. The Holy Spirit has his own distinct volitional capacity. This is a third indication of personality. This is all under the first the first uh, line of argumentation that the Holy Spirit produces the attributes of personality, intellect, will, and emotion anthropopathically. So we see this in a number of passages. For example, in the context of our study, in 1 Corinthians 12:11, we read, But one in the same Spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually as he wills. Well, that's a sign of his independent volition. So he decides the distribution of spiritual gifts. In Acts 20, I mean Acts 8 verse 29 and Acts 13:4, we see the Holy Spirit directing Christians in leadership. He is specifically involved in leading uh, believers and directing them in a certain course of action. That indicates the operation of His will. He convicts or reproves unbelievers in with respect to uh their sin in John sixteen seven and eight. John sixteen seven and eight. Thought I had that up on the screen, but I don't. John sixteen seven and eight, nevertheless I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away, for if I do not go away, the Helper will not come, but if I depart, I will send him to you. And when he has come, he will convict Elenko, he will reprove the world, that is, unbelieving mass of humanity, he will convict the world of sin, that is an operation of his will. So it is clear that in these passages that the Holy Spirit demonstrates the attributes of personality. Second line of argumentation is that the Holy Spirit performs the actions of a person. He performs the actions of a person. For example, in John 14:26, the Lord said that he would teach the disciples all things, that he would bring all of the events in Christ's ministry to them back to their uh, memory, and he would teach them, John 14:26, And John 15:26, we're told that the Spirit testifies our witnesses uh, to the individual, uh, John 15:26, as well as Romans 8:16. Romans 8, we're also told that the Spirit guides, leads, or directs believers in uh, Romans 8, 14. We've already noted that the Holy Spirit convicts or convinces or reproves believer, or unbelievers rather, in John 16, 7 and 8. In 2 Thessalonians 2, 6, we're told that the Holy Spirit restrains right now during the church age. He is restraining evil. And when he is removed from history at the rapture, taken out of this world, then there will no longer be a restraint on evil. And that is when all of the horrible things of the tribulation will come to pass, and that's in Second Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 6. We know uh, from Acts, a passage I referenced already, that the Holy Spirit commands and directs people. These are the actions of a person. Uh, Acts 8.29, the Spirit said to Philip, go near and overtake this chariot. So the, this is performing the action of a person. 
the Holy Spirit also performs miracles in Acts 8, verse 39. Now when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord caught Philip away, so that the eunuch saw him no more, and he went on his way rejoicing. And Philip is taken away miraculously and transported up to Samaria. So we see a number of places where the Holy Spirit performs the action of a person. The Holy Spirit also directs the church and distinguishes or set, set apart or separates certain people for Christian service. For example, in Acts 13.2 and Acts 13.4, we read, As they ministered to the Lord and fasted, the Holy Spirit said, Now separate to me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. And then in verse 4, So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. So in these verses we see that the Holy Spirit performs the actions of a person. He not only, point number one, or line of argumentation number one, he not only has attributed uh, the attributes of personality, intellect, anthropopathically, emotion, and will, but second, he has the actions of a person. And then finally, under actions of a person, the Holy Spirit intercedes in prayer for believers in Romans 8.26. Third line of argumentation, we've got two, we've got... Five in all, so we've got three more to go. Under the third line of argumentation, we see that the Holy Spirit is given the functions of a person. In other words, he's given the functions of a person. He can be obeyed. In Acts 10, 19 to 21, he can be obeyed. That means he can be disobeyed. Only a person can be obeyed or disobeyed. That's Acts 10, 19 through 21. The Holy Spirit can be lied to, Acts 5.3, when Ananias and Sapphira lied to the Holy Spirit. It's the first case of you have anybody being slain in the Spirit. The slow burn this morning. I know it's a little early. Okay. The Holy Spirit can be resisted, Acts 7.51. You can resist, only resist a person. The Holy Spirit can be grieved. We've studied that already, Ephesians 4.30. And the Holy Spirit can be blasphemed, Matthew 12.31. Those operations all relate to a person. You can only perform those in relationship to a person. So that's the third line of argumentation. The fourth line of argumentation is that the Holy Spirit is treated in Scripture as an equal member of the Godhead with the Father and the Son. He's treated in Scripture as an equal member of the Godhead with the Father and the Son. He's viewed as an equal member of the Godhead in the um, baptism statement in the Great Commission in Matthew 28:19, baptized in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. In Acts 5, 3 through 4, the Holy Spirit is called God. So in those two passages, he's equated with God. Then in these other passages I'm going to give you, we see that he has the attributes of deity. If someone has the attributes of deity, he must be Fully God. This is the same line of argumentation we use with Jesus Christ, that if he is eternal, he must be God because eternality is an attribute of deity. 
Okay, in terms of the attributes related to the Holy Spirit, he is omniscient. In 1 Corinthians 2, 11 to 12, we looked at that passage already, that he searches the mind of God. He is omniscient. He knows the mind of God. To know the mind of God, the mind of God is omniscient. Therefore, the Holy Spirit must also be omniscient. He's omnipresent. Psalm 139, 7, the psalmist said, Where can I go from your spirit? He's omnipotent, Job 33.4. He's omnipotent. He's said to uh, be truth or veracity in 1 John chapter 5, verse 6. Veracity in 1 John 5 through 6. He's given the attribute of absolute righteousness in Luke 11.13. He is the creator of life in Romans 8. Verse 2, so in all of these attributes, he is uh, expresses having all the attributes of deity. He's related to the Father and the Son in the uh, benediction of 2 Corinthians 13, 14, which talked about the, uh, uh, the fellowship of the Spirit. And he is related to the Father and the Son there as well. And in several passages... There are references in the Old Testament to an act of Yahweh. For example, in Isaiah 6, 8 through 9, where it talks about the Lord said. And then if you compare that with Acts 28, 25, you'll see that uh, it is the Holy Spirit who is said to have made that statement. Let's look at that on the overhead. Isaiah 6, 8 through 9. Also... Isaiah says, I heard the voice of the Lord, the voice of Yahweh, saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? Then I said, Here am I, send me. And Isaiah 6, verse 9, And he said, Go and tell this people, Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Now, who is it that says, keep on hearing but do not understand, keep on seeing but do not perceive? It is Yahweh. Now, when we look at Acts 28, 25, and 26, we read, so when they did not agree among themselves, they departed after Paul had said one word, quote, the Holy Spirit spoke rightly through Isaiah the prophet to our fathers, saying, Go to this people and say, Hearing you will hear and shall not understand, and seeing you will see and not perceive. So Acts 28, 25, and 26 takes a quote from the Old Testament that is attributed in Isaiah to Yahweh, and in Acts 28, 25, and 26, Paul says it was the Holy Spirit who said that. So in that passage, you have an identification of uh, Yahweh in the Old Testament with the Holy Spirit. Another passage that where you have the same kind of thing take place is in the New Covenant passage of Jeremiah 31, 31 to 34, and compare that with a quote in Hebrews 10, 15. So that is our fourth line of reasoning, that the Holy Spirit is treated as a co-equal member of the Godhead, co-equal with God the Father and God the Son. And then our fifth line of argumentation is based on a point of grammar, based on a point of grammar, and that is that the Holy Spirit is referred to grammatically as a person. And here we see that the word pneuma in the Greek, the Greek word pneuma, which is the word for spirit, air, wind, it's where we get our word, for example, in pneumatic pneumatic drill or pneumonia, 
This is spelled P-N-E-U-M-A. That this word in the Greek is a neuter noun. Now, the rule of grammar is that whenever you have a pronoun, a pronoun such as I, you, he, she, it, we, you, they, those are our pronouns. Whenever you have a pronoun, such as a third-person singular pronoun, in English we have he, she, or it. See, these are gender-related. That whenever you have a pronoun, that pronoun has to agree in, in gender with the noun. So if you have a masculine noun, you're going to use the masculine pronoun. If you have a feminine noun, you would use a feminine pronoun. If you have a neuter noun, you would use a neuter pronoun. And that in and of itself would not necessarily uh, indicate whether or not uh, the, the individual was a person or not, just depending upon the, the grammatical gender of the noun. However, in a number of places in the New Testament, you have the noun pneuma, and the Holy Spirit is referred to with a masculine pronoun. For example, in John 15:26 and Ephesians 1:14, both of those passages you have a masculine pronoun referring to the Holy Spirit. So this again indicates that the Holy Spirit is a person. So five lines of argumentation that God the Holy Spirit is a person. Now let's go back to our passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 12 and 13 emphasize the unity of the body as a result of the baptism by means of God the Holy Spirit, where the Lord Jesus Christ is pictured as the one baptizing, just as John the Baptist performed the action of baptism in the Jordan River, that the Lord Jesus Christ uses the third person of the Trinity, God the Holy Spirit, to identify every believer at the instant of salvation with himself in his death, burial, and resurrection. This then becomes the basis for all of the other actions that take place in the believer's life in relationship to the Holy Spirit. The indwelling of the Holy Spirit, distribution of spiritual gifts, the filling of the Holy Spirit are all related to this action of baptism by means of God the Holy Spirit. So it is that identification with Christ that is the logical precedent or the logical cause for all of the other actions related to the Holy Spirit that takes takes place. But the one that we're most concerned with is the one that is the subject of our passage, and that is spiritual gifts. Now, as we go through this passage, and as I've stated before, there's a movement in Paul's argumentation from the unity of the body on the one hand and the diversity of the individual members on the other hand. Whenever the emphasis is on the unity, that always ties back to what we have in Christ. That is positional truth. What every believer receives at the instant of salvation, there's no distinction. Every believer receives 40 different things at the instant of salvation. 39 are irrevocable. One is revocable. That is the the filling of God the Holy Spirit. When you sin, we grieve, we quench the Holy Spirit. So whenever we sin... 
we're out of fellowship and we have to confess our sin before we recover the filling of the Holy Spirit. Now, in verse 14, we have a further development on the uh, body of Christ, and here there's an emphasis on what's going on between the different individual members. So in verse 14 we read, I guess I don't have that on the screen. Verse 14, for in fact, the body is not one member, but many. So we've seen this emphasis on the unity, and now we're going to come back and look at the body itself. For the body, the body represents the body of Christ in positional unity. The body, that is the body of Christ, is not one. We don't lose our identity. This isn't some sort of Hindu doctrine of going to nirvana where you're just that little drop that at death, you, you that drop of water drops into the ocean and you lose your personal identity and you lose your, your uh, individuality and you just go off into this mass of, of uh, the, uni- the impersonal universe. Here we have the fact that you are part of the body of Christ, but yet you still have an individual role, individual function. You have an individual gift that is vital and important for the operation for the operation of the body. Now, there are certain things that, that we can conclude as we look at this whole idea of spiritual gifts and the body of Christ, just in terms of this analogy, the analogy of the human body to the spiritual body of the universal church, which is Jesus Christ. The first thing that follows from this, as we look at this study of spiritual gifts, the first thing that follows is that the spiritual gifts aren't optional, they're mandatory. This isn't something that you can opt out of and say, oh, well, this I have a spiritual gift, but it's not really necessary. Every part of the human body is necessary. When you don't have a part of the human body that is functioning, we call that being handicapped or deformed. It is not the normal operational process. So the first thing that follows is that the, the gifts are not optional. They're mandatory for the health of the body. The second thing that we can conclude from this is that if a human body can't function correctly without all the parts, then the body of Christ cannot function correctly without all of the parts. Therefore, it is not healthy for a even a local body of, church, of, of believers or for an individual believer to go for 15, 20, 30 years without operating in their spiritual gift. Any more than it's healthy for you to go 15 or 20 years without using your left arm or your right leg. Every part is important, and it is the healthy believer that is operating in his the realm of his spiritual gift. Third, We have to remember that in this passage, the body that is represented here is the universal church, not the local church. It's the universal church and not the local church. Now, that's a very important observation because a local church may or may not have all the parts. That's the first first corollary to this principle. The principle is that this passage is talking about the universal church. Now, I just made the statement that it's necessary for the body to have all the parts functioning in order for it to be healthy. 
But since we're talking about the universal church and not the local church, that's going to cast things in a slightly different light. For example, you can you have certain gifts such as apostles, prophets, other miraculous gifts that were foundational gifts and operated in the first century and ceased by the close of the apostolic era. In the early church, all the gifts were given since they were all given to the body, and the body of Christ, the universal body of Christ, is all believers living and dead. Those who are in Christ and those who are absent from the body face-to-face with the Lord are included. Therefore, if you have the gifts operational at any point in history, then the whole church benefits. See what I'm saying? You don't have to have the operational of the gift of apostle, prophet, miracles, healing going on today for the church to benefit because we're talking about the universal church, not a local body. So if they were operational at any generation, they would be to benefit to all generations. Now, the corollary to that is, or the implication of that is, they all had to be present in the first generation. If some of them didn't show up for three or four generations, then the earlier generations would not have benefited from them. So they all had to be operational in the first generation, but that doesn't mean that they're all operational at all succeeding uh, generations. Once is enough. That's why you have statements like Ephesians 2.20 that the apostles and prophets were the foundation of the church. So the third point that I've made here by inference from the body analogy is that the body represented here is the universal church, uh, the also sometimes called the Catholic church. That's not to be confused with the Roman Catholic church. Catholic is simply an English word that means universal. A Roman Catholic Church makes it the Roman Universal Church. That's different from simply talking about the Catholic Church. If you grew up in one of the churches where you quoted the Apostles' Creed and it says we believe in the Holy Catholic Church, that doesn't mean you believe in the Roman Catholic Church. That means you believe in the Holy Universal Church, which is a true statement. We all believe in the Catholic Church. We all believe in the Universal Church. That's different. So make sure you understand that and don't confuse the concepts of Catholic with Roman Catholic. So we're looking at the universal church, but not all local churches may have all the gifts. Even if all the even if certain gifts, let's say you have uh, all of the uh, permanent gifts are operational today, just because you have a local church doesn't mean all of these permanent gifts are there. You may have a small, small local church. In some cases, you may have a local church in some out-of-the-way place where it's only comprised of four or five families. Well, one would not expect to find all the spiritual gifts operational in that local church. But I would think that if you had a local church of any size, of let's say 100 to 200 uh, believers, then you would probably have some representation of all of the permanent gifts in that body of believers. Now, you must also recognize that any local church will also have a certain number of non-Christians, and they don't have spiritual gifts, and they should not uh, be thinking in terms of their own spiritual gifts. They should be thinking in terms of their eternal life. Okay, the fourth 
principle, the fourth inference from the body analogy, uh, and that is that if the local church isn't the whole the whole body, if the local church isn't the same as the whole body, then it can function without all the gifts being present. So a local church can function without all of the gifts being present because a local church is defined as any group of believers that meets on a regular basis for the study of the word. And that may be as small a group as five or six people depending on where you're located. It may include five or 6,000 people, but in many cases it can be a very small group. And in that case it may not have uh, but one or two gifts present. Okay, that's just some inferences by way of introduction. Now, verse 15. Actually, verses 15 down through verse 18 emphasizes the importance of every member of the gift. And here Paul just uses a typical illustration from the body itself. You have a human body. Have different parts of the human body, so he is going to take four different elements in the human body: the foot, and the hand, and um, the eye, uh, and the ear, and he is going to use those to represent different spiritual gifts. So he uses this analogy, and he says, "Now, let's say there's one believer, and he's a hand, and another believer is a foot." Now, hands do many more things than feet do. A hand can grab things. You can play the piano. You can play a musical instrument with your hand. It's very difficult to do that with a foot. Uh, you can't pick up too many things with your feet. Now, if you have long toes and you're a little bit uh, agile, you may be able to pick up one or two things, but you can't pick up a glass of water and drink with it, although you've seen people on television, as I have, who have had some sort of accident and learned how to use their feet like hands, but for the most part, your ha- your hands can do many more things than your feet can do. So you might have one believer who thinks, "Well, I'm a I'm a foot, not a hand. Therefore, I'm not as important as a hand believer." And then you get the hand believer who says, "Well, you're just a foot. I'm a lot better than you are because of all the things that I can do. Look how special and important I am." And that's the first analogy that he uses in verses. Um, 15 and 16, if the foot says, because I am not a hand, I'm not a part of the body. It's not for this reason any the less a part of the body. Just because you don't think you can do all the things somebody else can do doesn't mean your role and your position isn't important. Without a foot, we don't have stability. Without a foot, we don't have balance. All of the toes are important. That if you don't have a little toe on your foot, you're not going to be as agile and as balanced and as stable as a person who does. Every part is important. Verse 16, he uses the analogy of an ear versus an eye. If the ear says, well, I'm not an eye, I'm not a part of the body. It's not for this reason any the less a part of the body. In other words, the ear believer is saying, well, I can't do all of the things that I look, how important an eye is, all the colors you can see, uh, how easy it is to to determine where to walk and where not to walk, how to avoid injury. You can't do that. Uh, The ear can't do that. So the ear is complaining about the fact that he's just not as necessary. But the ear does many things that the eye cannot do. And so the point here 
is simply that every part is vital. Every spiritual gift has a significant and important role in the health of the overall function of the body. And that's true for the local church. Every member of the team and every person here is a member of the team at Preston City Bible Church, and every person has an important role to play. And as you are growing and maturing as a believer, you have the opportunity to get involved in some level of Christian service. Now, we recognize that Christian service isn't the means to spiritual growth, but Christian service, nevertheless, is part of your uh, spiritual life. It gives you the opportunity to express love for one another, that is, uh, impersonal love for other believers in terms of what whatever area you can you can manifest it uh, some of you have uh, different skills. We have a lot of people in the congregation who have tremendous uh, skills in carpentry or handiwork or maintenance and really help keep this old building together and if it weren 't for the the uh, tremendous amount of work that some of you do, this place would have fallen down a long time ago. And I have a tremendous amount of respect because sometimes I can hardly tell the difference between a hammer and a screwdriver. But then you all don't know Greek and Hebrew either. So, see, we all have a vital role to play in the operation of the body of Christ. So no one should think they're any less significant than anybody else because we all have different places on the team. And this was the problem in Corinth, and it's a problem in some churches today where they want to take certain gifts and blow them out of proportion. This happens in the uh, Pentecostal movement where they say everybody ought to speak in tongues. Well, even when that gift was operational, not everyone had that gift. Not every gift is manifested by everybody, and this is Paul's point in 1 Corinthians 12:17. If the whole body were an eye... Where would the hearing be? If the whole body were hearing, where would the smelling be? In other words, every gift is important. You don't want everybody doing the same job, just like on a football team. You don't want everybody playing quarterback. You only need one quarterback. You have different people with different talents and different abilities and different positions, and each person is important to the operation of the whole. And this is Paul's point in verse 18. But now God, this is God the Holy Spirit in his uh, function of sovereign will as in verse 11. But now God has placed or appointed the members, each one of them in the body, just as he desired. So your spiritual gift is determined by God, not by you. It's not based on who you are, what you want, what you think you want, what kind of position you would like to have in the body. It's up to God, and God gives you that gift, or he distributes that gift to you at the instant of your salvation. And that gives that is a gift that will become manifest as you grow and mature. See, the, one of the things that has really struck me as I've gone through these spiritual gift passages is that of all the imperatives in the Scripture, and there's hundreds of commands in the Scripture, there is not a command anywhere to discover your spiritual gift. Not one. And so all these people who get all caught up in what's my spiritual gift and I need to figure out what my spiritual gift is are going down the wrong trail. The Scripture so often in the spiritual life is very sophisticated and often approaches things from a sort of a, 
uh, an envelopment aspect. See, the issue isn't go out and discover your spiritual gift. The issue is grow to spiritual maturity. And as you do that, one day you will realize the arena in which your spiritual gift operates. What we are commanded to do is to function in most of these areas. We're to serve one another. We're to teach one another. All believers are commanded to give. Uh, All believers are commanded to uh, love one another so that we all get involved in most of the areas of these spiritual gifts in one way or another, but some of us are going to show a, a particular ability or talent in certain areas. And as you grow spiritually, then you will become more effective in that area of Christian service. Now, Paul goes on to say in verse 19, if all were one member, where would the body be? See, his argument is still that, look, we're not, we don't lose our identity. We don't all, we're not all the same. God isn't up there in heaven with a little cookie cutter making every Christian look exactly like the next Christian. There are diversities or different personalities. There's different talents. And then at salvation, you're given different spiritual gifts and yours are not going to operate and function exactly like the next person because there's going to be a mix that takes place in your particular experience. For example, let's take a person here, and on the one hand, he has a package of natural talents. Those natural talents may include musical ability. They may include certain uh, abilities in terms of, uh, let's say, construction work, or he's a, he's a handyman. Uh, let's say it's a person who has... Uh, intellectual talents as a high IQ. Whatever it may be, you have a natural arena of talents. Then, on the other hand, God has a package of spiritual gifts. Now, this may be one spiritual gift, or it may be three or four spiritual gifts. A Christian may have more than one. And spiritual gifts that are listed in the Bible, I think, are like the primary colors. You know, you have your three primary colors, and however you mix them, you come up with all of the other shades of colors. And I think that's how spiritual gifts operate. The ones that are listed in the Scripture are different, your primary gifts, and they're going to mix and blend, and we're going to see that word in a minute in the Scripture, they're going to mix and blend together with your personality. So let's say you have... Uh, the gift of giving on the one hand, and you have that to a certain proportion. And on the other hand, you have the gift of mercy. And let's say on, on the other hand, you have a certain proportion of the gift of administration. Now you take another person over here, and let's say they have the gift of teaching to a certain proportion, and the gift of mercy to a lesser degree, like the first person, and the gift of administration to a larger degree, and that gift of mercy and administration, because it's mixed with teaching and their own array of natural talents, their gift of administration is going to look completely different in operation than this other person's gift of administration. And so each person is going to manifest the gifts 
And each person is going to manifest their own personality in different ways. So you don't want to walk around saying, well, I want to be just like so-and-so. He's got the gift of teaching, so I want to teach like him. Or he has the gift of administration or leadership, so I'm going to be like him. Because you have a different personality and you have different spiritual gifts as well, and those are all going to mix together and blend together differently in your life. And so there's an importance on each individual and their role in the body of Christ, and you don't need to come along and try to be just like somebody else. You are who you are. You're unique, and God has a specific role for you in terms of your benefit to the body of Christ. So... Paul says, but now God has placed the members, each one of them in the body, just as he desired. So he is in control, and he is the one who is mixing all of the ones together just as he would have them. Then in verse 19, if they were all one member, where would the body be? In other words, if everybody were just alike, why would you need everybody else? There's an importance to the diversity. But now, verse 20, but now there are many members, the emphasis on diversity again, but one body. That is positional truth. We all have certain things in common. We're equal in certain areas. But what you do with them is dependent on your volition, and that's going to make a difference. So the conclusion, verse 21, and therefore the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, or again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. No, verse 22, on the contrary, it is much truer that the members of the body which seem to be weaker are necessary. Now here he moves into a slightly uh, different uh, approach to the problem. He says, it's much truer that the, or it's, it is much more true that the members of the body which seem to be weaker are necessary. And the word for weaker is the adjective form of the noun asthenes. And asthenes means simply to be without strength, to be powerless, or to lack physical ability. It is used to mean something that is unimpressive. So we could translate this on the contrary. It is much truer that members of the body which are unimpressive are necessary. And the word for necessary is the Greek word anakeia, which is an adjective, which means necessary or indispensable. So the idea here is that the members of the body which have a certain appearance to be ineffective or they're not very impressive in their appearance are necessary. And when I think about the human body, you think of uh, two organs. I know when I took science back in high school, they were called vestigial organs, the appendix and the tonsils. They're not important. Just take them out. They don't have in, they're just sort of a remainder of some uh, previous stage of evolution and they don't have any significance anymore. And yet, current studies have shown that both the appendix and the tonsils are necessary and they play a vital role in the immune system of the body. So that is the idea that there are certain uh, physical organs that may not appear to be very impressive. I mean, you may look at your pancreas and not think that's so important at all, but you can't live without it. You may look at your uh, liver and think, well, that's not so impressive. What can the liver do? But just try to live without it. So there are different people who function in the body of Christ, and you may look at them and you think, well, you know, what can they do? What good are they? I mean, they just don't seem to be very impressive at all. 
and yet they have a spiritual gift and a role to play in the body of Christ that is very important. So verse 22, Paul says, on the contrary, it is much more that the members of the body which uh, are which are unimpressive are indispensable. And then in verse 23, and those members of the body which we deem less honorable, and those we bestow are on those on these we bestow more abundant honor. Now, what is he saying here? He says, well, there are certain parts of the body which we think are less honorable, and on these we bestow. And the word for bestow is peritithemi. This is a Greek word, or peritithemi. which really gives us the clue as to understanding what he is talking about here. P-E-R-I-T-I-T-H-E-M-I. And this is a word that means to wrap something around. For example, it's used in Matthew 27, 28 for putting the scarlet robe around Jesus, placing something around someone like a garment. And the idea here is that there are certain parts of the body which are less honorable. You know, that paunch that you have or the saddlebags on your hips or whatever. They're just not that attractive, so what do you do? You dress in a certain way as to minimize the unattractiveness of that so that your clothes cover that up and, and nobody can tell that you really have a have a beer belly or whatever it might be. So... That's the idea here. There are those members of the body which we deem to be less honorable, and on those you uh, bestow, you cover up, you wrap around with more honor, and then there are less presentable members, and these are more private parts that are uh, perhaps shameful or indecent to expose. It's not that there's anything inherently wrong with those, but that they are the parts of the body that one just keeps covered, and so we cover those up. Verse 24, whereas our more presentable members have no need of it. Now, the point he's making in verses 23 and 24 is just talking about the natural body. Some parts you want to show off. Other parts you want to cover up. Other parts you have to cover up. Then he makes the analogy in the second part of 24. But God has so composed the body. But God has so uh, composed the body... And this is the Greek word, soon keronumi. Soon keronumi. Let me spell that here. S U, and that's whenever you have a gamma K, kappa, that's a, like an N K, S U N K. E-R-A-N-N-U-M-I. And the soon at the beginning has the idea of with or mixing together. And uh, kiranumi has the idea of blending. So it has the idea of blending things together to make a harmonious whole by mixing various disparate elements together and blending them together uh, as a harmonious whole. So the idea here is that God has so mixed up the body and so comprised the body of different gifts that 
he is able to give more honor to the member which lacks honor, and then verse 25, so that there may be no division in body, but that the same, but that the members may have the same care for one another. So the point he's making here is that while in the natural body there may be some parts of the body that you think are dishonorable and you want to cover up, God has so composed the body of Christ so that there aren't any members of the body of Christ that are dishonorable or you want to cover up. They, that we are to all have the same care for one another. That is mutual ministry in the body of Christ. That we are to have the same concerns or cares for one another. And the verb here, to have the same care, is actually the Greek verb merimnao, which is the Greek verb for that is related to the noun for cares. For example, in First uh, Peter 5, 7, to cast your cares upon him. Or it's the same verb that's in uh, Philippians 4, uh, 5 and 6, to be anxious for nothing. That's that idea that we are to have the same anxieties for one another, the same care. So that what is a worry for you should be a worry for me. What is a concern for you should be a concern for me, that we have this uh, mutual concern. So there's not the idea of one person being more important or more honorable than the other, but we all uh, care for one another, recognize the importance of each other, and that is the operation of impersonal love for all mankind. And now we see that as Paul introduces this idea of having the same care for one another, he's foreshadowing the the topic of chapter 13, which will be love, what impersonal love is, what this Christian, unique Christian love is all about and how it is characterized. So for spiritual service, here's the principle. Spiritual service to function correctly, it is based on an understanding of impersonal love for all mankind, which is motivated in turn by our love for God. Now, I had hoped to finish this passage this morning and get down into an identification of the different spiritual gifts, but I don't think we're going to make it, so we'll stop here in verse 25 and the care for one another, and we will pick up in verse 26 and finish off the chapter next Sunday morning, finishing off with an understanding of the different spiritual gifts and identifying what they are with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we do thank you for this opportunity to study your word this morning, for the insight into the body of Christ and how it functions, that each of us has an important role to play. And in many cases, those that are out front, such as pastors, evangelists, and others who are more obvious, that these may play an important and significant role, but is no more important than that of those that operate behind the scenes, that each person has a vital role for the health of the overall body of Christ. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to be challenged by your grace, for it is your grace that has given each of us our spiritual gifts. But the greatest manifestation of your grace was at the cross. And so, Father, we uh, take time each Sunday morning to make sure that if anyone is here this morning that is unsure of their salvation or uncertain of their eternal destiny, that they would take this opportunity to make that sure and certain. Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins. 
This was necessary in order for you to have salvation. Scripture says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and the penalty for sin is spiritual death. So right now, right where you sit, you can determine your eternal destiny. All you need to do is put your faith alone in Christ alone. It's not a matter of your morality. It's not a matter of your failures. It's not a matter of making a bargain with God, or it's not a matter of religious observance. It is simply a matter of putting your trust, your reliance, completely on Jesus Christ for your salvation. Father, we pray that you would challenge us with the things that we have studied this morning. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.